When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we have a special guest today. We have a doctor, Dr. David. How do you spell your last name? Uh, Shokrian. Shokrian. S-H-O-K. Yes, R-I-A-N. So right now, you're in uh, New York? Yes, New York City. How long you lived in New York for? Uh, I have been living in New York pretty much all my life. I was about two years old when my parents moved here, and I have been living here ever since. Uh-huh. I have uh, lived in um, other places, but this is where home is. This is where my family's at. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about your story. Where did you grow up? What was uh, growing up like? So I am the first of uh, five kids. I have four younger siblings, three brothers, one sister. I was actually born, I'm a uh an Iranian Jew. My family left Iran uh, right after the Islamic Revolution, and we came straight to New York. And I grew up um, in Queens, and then my parents later on moved uh, out to Long Island. I can't exactly tell you when I knew that I wanted to be a doctor. I think it was probably from the womb, (laughs) firstborn son of, uh, you know, Persian Jewish immigrants. It was kind of my parents' dream, and eventually became my dream uh, to pursue a career as a physician. So, What did your parents do growing up? My dad is a real estate developer. He is, uh, by education, he's a uh, civil engineer. He has his PhD in civil engineering. He actually went to uh, the University of Texas at Arlington, then went back home to Iran, married my mom, (laughs) and then they uh, had me. And then they uh, returned back to the United States um, in order for, you know, their children to have a better life. Gotcha. When did you uh, start talking to your parents about becoming a doctor? When did you start really thinking about going to med school? In Uh, high school or college? Probably from elementary school. Wow. I was on the path. Yeah. So I took a not too uncommon path. I mean, I went, uh, you know, four years of high school, straight from high school, four years of undergrad. I was a double major. I studied both um, biology, science, as well as political science. So I always had an interest in law and justice. People told me I'd make a really good lawyer. Mm -hmm. But on the other end, I also studied medicine. And ultimately, I decided med school was the way for me to go. 
Uh, right after college, I was accepted into the Sackler School of Medicine uh, at Tel Aviv University. It's a combined uh, U.S.-Israeli program. The students are all American. The classes are all taught in English. And, and it's I in Israel? To, it's in Israel. It's in Tel Aviv. And uh -huh. I was fortunate enough to live in Tel Aviv between the years of 2003 and 2007. I still refer to them as the greatest four years of my entire life. I had an absolutely phenomenal education. I was trained mm -hmm. by some of the most brilliant doctors in the world at some of the most renowned medical centers, you know, out there. And uh, upon completion of the four years of medical school, I was accepted into a general surgery uh, training program here in New York, where I spent five years getting full training as a general surgeon. What, so everything What interested you to go into surgery as opposed to anything else? I mean, I liked doing things with my hand. I liked there's a certain immediate gratification that comes with surgery. It's not with all surgery. Obviously, there are surgical pathologies that are not curable with an operation. However, there are a lot of things in general surgery that you can take care of with a single operation. The other thing that I really enjoyed was the uh, trauma aspect. The mm -hmm. place where I trained was a level one trauma center. It was very heavy on critical care. Critical care takes a lot of thinking. It takes a lot of um, you know decision-making. I was always very much comfortable doing those things and I was good at it. Uh, I never got nervous or scared in a situation that seemed hectic or crazy. Mm -hmm. And so to me, surgery and trauma was always something that was very, uh, very exciting, very rewarding. You could literally save a life if you acted appropriately and timely. But the entire, you know, but during my training, I got, and I, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of exposure to the plastic surgery mm -hmm. side of surgery. My hospital had a very busy plastic surgery practice with residents and fellows. And during my, um, my fourth and fifth year, I was fortunate enough to be invited by a, uh, a very well-known plastic surgeon to go on two mission trips to the Philippines to fix cleft cool. lip and palates. So oh, wow. I was able to take... Can you explain? Because yeah, so, I know what that is, but can you explain to people what that is? Yeah, definitely. So there is a, there's a certain number of uh, kids born in the world, uh, some countries more than others, uh, where they either have a cleft lip, which is essentially there's a non-fusion of the lip. They have a, it's called, you know, a hair lip, where the lip is not completely fused. And then mm -hmm. they can also have a split in the palate, which is the roof of the mouth. And the palate is what controls not only speech, but it also is, um, so speech is a huge thing when you have a cleft palate. Mm -hmm. And then again, you know, things like diet and nutrition can become very much affected in these individuals. And mm -hmm. a lot of the third world countries don't have um, the means, the resources, the hospitals or the doctors to deal with all of the cases. The uh, organization that I worked with is an was an organization out of Denver. It was called Uplift International. And the plastic surgeon that I worked with was a, a senior member of the organization. And he invited me to go along on two mission trips with him, one in 2006 and one in 2007. And it was like surgery camp. Mm -hmm. We would do about, I think we would do about a total of 100 to 130 cases per mission trip. And um, it was great. It was nurses, anesthesiologists, plastic surgeons, pediatric surgeons, all just kind of going into these remote areas, evaluating 
dozens and dozens of, of mm-hmm. kids with these pathologies, signing them up for surgery and basically fixing them, giving them a new lease on life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I could tell you're a doctor, you're very like methodical when you talk. What are like some experiences that you had? Because, you know, to break it down, you're volunteering your time to go to a country that probably doesn't have access to these medical practices or especially plastic surgery is probably like an ancillary thing that they don't even think of or have the means to get. So what does it feel like or what did it feel like or what are some experiences you had there that made you feel, you know, some type of way? So first of all, it was incredibly rewarding to be able to help these kids and to be welcomed into these towns and into these villages. They have rotary clubs where they would um, essentially send out uh, individuals to meet us, to greet us, to ha- you know, to help us uh, acclimate us to whichever island we were on. We would, you know, be treated immensely well. The villagers would obviously, you know, they would cook for us day and night, um, take us out at night to the local haunts wherever they may be to see the culture, see the area. Being able to meet these kids, meet their parents, see how incredibly grateful they were for the fact that we were there and being able to help them. It also gave me a perspective I'd never had before because healthcare in America is so incredibly advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the most advanced healthcare system in the entire world. It's far superior. I mean, it's it's vastly superior to any other healthcare system. I remember at one hospital that we went to, there was literally a list of procedures that they would perform and then there was a price list next to it. And it said, if you need this procedure, this is what it costs. If you can't afford it, we can't help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember in the one of the in the other hospital that I was at, there was an ICU, but their ICU essentially consisted of family members sitting there taking care of patients and ventilating them, meaning that the breathing machines that these sick patients were on, if they did not have a family member. Um, sitting there and working the machine and ventilating them and essentially pushing oxygen into their lungs so that they can breathe on these machines, the person would die. It Mm. wasn't like the way that healthcare is set up in this country. No matter who you are here in the United States, no matter where you are here in the United States, you will find access to healthcare. You will find an emergency room. Mm -hmm. And if that emergency room is not able to meet your demands, they will transport you to a tertiary care facility, a university hospital, a place where you will receive, you know, the latest and greatest of what it would take to essentially give you the best chance. Um, But it wasn't like that in those other places. And so it gave me a tremendous, it was tremendously eye-opening and and humbling and it made me realize you know how fortunate i was that my parents did make that decision to you know pick up their lives and bring us to this great country so mm-hmm. that we can live here and thrive here and uh you know have the best life possible and how old were you when you did this how old were I, you when you graduated med school i graduated med school i was 25 when i graduated from med school i was 30 when I graduated from general surgery. Mm -hmm. I then spent a year doing uh, burn surgery and critical care um, in New York City. Um, Another intense experience. I was a uh, fellow. I ran a 40-bed burn center in Manhattan. Hmm. I was one of two fellows. Very intense experience. Burn patients are very critically ill. They require an immense amount of care and an immense amount of attention to detail. I did that for a year. And then after that, I uh, went off to do my um, plastic surgery training, which was an additional three years. And I finished all of my training, I believe, at the age of 
35. 35. I had done 10 years total of training since medical school. Mm-hmm. So I had 10 um, postgraduate years of training, and I have now been in my own private practice in Manhattan for almost four years. Awesome. So when you're in med school, do they ever teach you like the emotional aspect of dealing with patients like dying or any type of like mental illness or like, because I would imagine that there's trauma that you develop as a doctor from getting emotional attachments to the families or anything like that. And most doctors that I've dealt with are like extremely cold. And I wonder if like they just become like that over the years or. So yeah, nobody's born cold. Nobody's born with a thick shell. Mm-hmm. It is something that ha- that um, innately develops as you're a physician. You're not taught compassion, obviously. As a physician, you are compassionate. And I think that you have even deeper feelings for people than a lot of other people because you're out there trying to do the best thing, make the best decisions, com- you know, formulate the best plans for your patients. And sometimes it's a success and sometimes it's a failure. But given the intensity of the work, given some of the situations that you're put in, given some of the circumstances that you have to deal with, you come to the realization pretty quickly, um, even as a medical student, rotating uh, through your, you know, through the hospitals, rotating through different clerkships in your third year and your fourth year, that there are a lot of situations that are, you know, they're not going to end well. And the more experience you have, the more quickly you're able to predict that. And so I think on some subconscious level, you start to realize when those situations are coming, how they're going to go. And your mind has an amazing way of preparing itself to deal with that trauma. Mm -hmm. I do think that a lot of physicians, we are, you know, taught and warned to look out for signs of burnout. We are taught to look out for signs of, of stress that's outside the realm of what's considered normal for a physician. And, you know, we are encouraged to obviously seek out any type of um, counseling if we need it. But, you know, physicians are, in general, we're tough. We're mentally, Mm -hmm. we're very uh, mentally resilient. And then as a surgeon, you are even more mentally resilient because you know that you're going to be dealing with patients who have some, you know, trauma that is, irreversible, like, you know, traumatic brain injury, or if you have a patient who is essentially alive, but at the same time, you know, you know, is brain dead, or a patient who has such severe trauma that their lives will never be the same, or they'll never make it out of the hospital. You also have patients you deal with who have certain, you know, other things like, you know, there are a lot of cancers out there that still will end your life. And it's especially hard when you're dealing with young individuals, you know, young moms, young dads, teenagers who are dealing with, and then obviously the pediatric population, when you're dealing with those types of things, you do have to walk into that situation and try to put your feelings to the side in order to be as objective as you can be and do the job the best way possible. Mm -hmm. When you're in uh, med school, did you ever have thoughts of like quitting? No, I have never in my life once (laughs) thought about quitting anything I've ever started. That's cool. That's That's not me at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, every time I've ever been told that I can't do something, I've always called it a blessing. It's the Mm -hmm. the minute someone says that to me, I just, I tell myself, you just basically sprinkled me with magic fairy dust because now (laughs) it's going to happen. Awesome. Um, And that's exactly how it's always been. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I'm the same way. Um, let me ask you: When you were working at the the burn victim with the burn victims, what were some of the like most difficult situations, and also some like the best success stories you've seen out of there? 
The most amazing situations was that I was working in probably the best burn center in the entire country, while Cornell Medical Center. They are the resources, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists are the absolute most brilliant, most compassionate, most um, well-learned individuals. And so I was very privileged to be able to work with those people, learn from them, understand how seriously they take their jobs. And then the amount of commitment and time they took to train me was really an incredible situation. So we had a lot of successful, uh, we had a lot of success uh, with burn victims. I mean, yes, obviously, you know, burn is a spectrum. You can have a person with a small burn that comes in for a few days, gets taken care of, leaves. You can have a pediatric burn, which is obviously very traumatic mm. and traumatizing for the child and the parent, but you get them through it with an immense amount. And it's a multidisciplinary approach. It's not just the physician who's there. It's the physician. It's the, you know, child welfare individual. It's the psychologist. It's the sociologist. It's the support staff. It's a whole team of people that would meet and talk about and address every single aspect of this person's care. So I was very privileged to see how um, medicine done in that way can be so beneficial and address so many things at the same time. Um, and I learned an immense amount of critical care while doing it. We we saved so many people. I was there for a year. I remember having patients that were in the burn unit with me uh, essentially kind of be reborn. We had patients with 98% total body surface area burns. Jesus. It's, it's an immediate death sentence, but um, we watched. I took care of them, and uh, after a year of being in the in the burn unit, they went home. Their entire bodies were, you know, skin grafted. They had to le relearn how to walk and talk and eat and adjust to a new self. But they were alive, mm -hmm. and they were grateful to be alive. So, yeah, I learned a lot of great lessons being there and uh, learning from some of the, you know, best burn critical care surgeons um, that were out there. How do you, I guess, like, you know, because, you know, I work in healthcare and I see a lot of crazy stuff, but like, I would just imagine, like, how do you do that day in and day out and go home and like try to live a normal life? Like, I would imagine that it just like, you know, dealing with that day in and day out is very stressful on like, you know, just your spirit. Uh, it is. I have a very strong um, foundation of people. I have an amazing family. I have an amazing mom. I think that I gain and garner most of my strength and my will from her. She is the most resilient person in the world. Um, my dad has always been the greatest role model for me. You know, he taught me humility. He taught me kindness. Uh, his motto in life was, you know, do unto others as you would want done unto you. It's exactly, uh, it's a motto that I don't even really think about anymore. It's just how, to, you know, sort of how I live my life. I, I treat people the way I want to be treated. Does it always work out that way? No, but that's kind of, you know, what I, how I do what I do. Um, and those were the people that I would rely on. And I would go home and think about my patients, but I wouldn't internalize it. I would think mm -hmm. about what is it that I can do tomorrow? What is it that I maybe could have done today? What, is there something that I missed? Is there something that I didn't think of? And so I would preoccupy myself uh, with those thoughts. And I continue to preoccupy myself with those thoughts. I think about, you know, my patients are a part of my daily thinking. Even to this day, I think about 
the person I operated on yesterday, the op- the person I operated on a week ago. You know, as a doctor, as a physician, especially a busy one, and as a surgeon, it's it's sort of at a different level because you're not just treating chronic conditions with medication and with you know monthly follow-ups. It's much more of an acute setting. It's it's more fast-paced. Things mm-hmm. can happen much more quickly. So you're just your mind is always constantly going through a list of people, a list of things, a list of situations you want to make sure you have under tight control. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's essentially sort of how my mind works and it's what's on the forefront of my mind. Mm-hmm. What made you did you always want to do plastic uh, surgery or did that kind of happen later on? Yeah, I did. I, I always wanted to be a plastic surgeon. I remember it was um, St. Patrick's Day. It was my second or third year of medical school. Um, and we were all out celebrating at an Irish pub in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. It was called Molly Blooms. It was right on the beach. And, uh, you know, obviously it was St. Patrick's Day. I had a lot to drink. And I I think I stood up on a stool and screamed out and I said, I'm going to be a pl- <laughs> I said, I'm going to be a plastic surgeon. And all my friends kind of laughed at me and they said, okay, well, that's great. But I said it and I did it. That's cool. And most things that I've said that I will do, I have done. And I I hope Mm -hmm. to continue to do that. So I've never been to Israel. Uh, I have a lot of friends that are Jewish and are, you know, actually Israeli and and lived in Israel. What would you say like the main differences are in living in a place like Tel Aviv or, you know, a place like New York, something like that? There's very little difference. The only real difference is the weather. Really? Tel Aviv is, yeah, it's just a beautiful, it's just beautiful all year round. It's on the beach. Um, as far as nightlife, restaurants, it's, I don't think that it has much of any kind of difference. I'm very much a connoisseur of food. I love going to nice places. I love trying new cuisine. Mm-hmm. Israel has some of the best restaurants and chefs and budding, you know, culinary stars. Um, their nightlife is crazy, you know, mm-hmm. much more in the European style than in, you know, the, the New York style. There's a lot of places that are outdoors for half the year, which is, you know, beautiful on the water. There's people from all different cultures, backgrounds, walks of life um, in the city. You know, mm-hmm. since I left, I think it's also essentially become one of the largest destination um, for gay pride. It's one of the most, I think they have the largest gay pride parade in the entire world. Uh, it's a beautiful city and it's an absolutely beautiful country. Cool. Uh, it has everything from mountains that you can go skiing on to, you know, obviously Jerusalem is there, which is mountainous and and beautiful and holy and spiritual. And then you have Tel Aviv, which is very cosmopolitan uh, and very advanced. So it has everything in one very, very small country. And the education that I received in the hospitals that I was at and the way we were treated as med students versus the way that I see med students being treated here, we were treated a lot better. <laughs> nice. We were. I mean, we just were. We were. We were treated with gold gloves and just constantly. The, the focus was about teaching us as much and giving us as much mm-hmm. knowledge and information as we could possibly take away. What are some things that med school didn't prepare you for, like becoming a doctor? Because I do see that a lot of people that have these MDs are not really prepared for a lot of you know, crash course in life or in business or owning their own practice. Um, what are yeah, like some so things that you struggled with? Med school in no way, shape or form prepares you for any sort of business savviness in, of any kind. In fact, I think it's taboo 
to talk about how to run a successful practice and make a successful living while in med school. Med school's focus is to teach you the science and not even really, and a little bit of the practice of medicine, but the real practice of medicine is taught to you during training. Mm -hmm. That's why there are residencies, and that's why the residencies are years and years long, because it takes years to teach you how to hone in on a craft, whether that craft is something in the surgical field, whether that craft is something in the non-surgical medical field, whether it's in the pediatric field or in the psychiatric. You know, these are the kind of big tenants of or subdivisions of medicine. So you have to get out and you actually have to practice and you actually have to get hands-on experience and deal with patients and try different things. That's why they say medicine is more of an art than a science. And it is more of an art than a science because although there's a ton of science out there and a ton of things you can refer to when you're trying to find a solution to a problem you may be having or some way you're trying to help or cure or, or alleviate somebody's pathology, you sometimes are, are just, you, you're left to your own devices to figure out what the best course of treatment is for that mm -hmm. individual. So it gives you the foundation, and then from there you go on and you hope to find good mentors, you, you hope to find good people to train you, and you hope to end up in a place where you can take away from them as much knowledge and information as you can so that when you're out on your own, you're, you know, you're well prepared to do what you need to do to help your patients. Awesome. What benefit do you think that you have from being somebody who is, you know, pretty religious and spiritual over, you know, someone who probably isn't? Because I think that a lot of people believe that, you know, you can't be spiritual and science-based as well, but, you know, there are plenty of doctors that are. I tow that line very, very easily. I thank God for all of my for all of my successes, and I thank God for all of my challenges. I mm -hmm. thank him for everything that's ever been brought into my life. Uh, when you are spiritual, you don't necessarily see them as challenges. You see them as ways that, you know, as an opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. I have had those, let's call them opportunities for growth, come my way, um, sometimes more often than I'd like. But I've also been given the, you know, strength and fortitude because of my belief system and because I do, you know, value my religion, I do I do believe I have a very, very personal relationship with God. I think we speak a lot. I think sometimes he's listening more than other times. <laughs> I think sometimes we're closer than, you know, other times. But I have lived through multiple miracles in my life, personal ones, and they truly are. And if you're able to see that, and if you're able to, you know, have your eyes opened to the fact that those things are happening to you, and if you're able to see that not everybody is as lucky as you are to be able to survive and get through and have a positive outcome from some of the challenges that they're faced with, then you're very blessed. So, you know, in your most difficult times, you have someone or something, some, you know, some force to turn to and speak to and believe that the things that are happening to you are happening because they're supposed to happen and because they are happening to you to make you more successful, to make you stronger, to make you more mature and to make you a better person mm -hmm. and to make you better at your craft. You know, there's a very old Jewish saying, which essentially, tra I won't say it in Hebrew, but essentially translated, it basically says, this too is for the best, meaning that even this terrible thing that's happening to you 
is for the best and it will end well. And if you keep that in the back of your head, you can get through a lot of difficult times and, mm -hmm. and difficult situations. What are some of like the most difficult things that were unexpected that happened to you as a doctor? So there have been a you know a, a smattering of things, um, but for me, you know, at this young age, I, I'm. 39 now, which kind of seems old, but I still think I have some experiences and some living to do. I've had two major incidences that I think have prepared me immensely for being in the position that I'm in currently. And I'll explain kind of the position that I'm in currently. But the two situations that stand out in my head is during my plastic surgery training was um, an incredibly intense training. I am very happy that I was able to, you know, be selected to into the program that I was chosen into. It's an incredibly competitive cutthroat industry. Um, so me and my wife spent um, three years living down in Birmingham, Alabama. I was very excited at the prospect of it. Uh, I had lived away from home before, so it wasn't a difficult thing for me to do. But my training down there was challenging in the fact that I faced an immense amount of adversity from the program um, while I was there. I was subjected to, you know, some pretty blatant and overt anti-Semitism. There were things that I endured um, as a result of essentially being targeted because of Frankly, I was a loud-mouthed, uh, observant religious Jew. Mm -hmm. I did not fit the typical profile of a of the model of person that I guess the program was used to. I had a very close affiliation with a religious organization called Chabad, which I do to this day. Uh, and I'm very proud to say that it's an incredible organization that's very inclusive. They are a worldwide presence in the spread of, you know, the message of Judaism. Uh, they accept Jews of all backgrounds, religious, non-religious, uh, observant, non-observant. And we, me and my wife were fortunate enough to find them, and they became kind of like family to us. Mm -hmm. um, when this affiliation became more well-known, I started sort of be, to become more and more and more of an outcast. Initially, it was a very devastating thing for me because I had always been in an academic situation or in settings in, in academia in my previous training programs where I was kind of the, you know, I, I was very much liked by everybody, including the doctors that were, you know, and the attendings that were training me. This situation turned into something where one particular individual who was in a position of power made it very well known that I was a problem in his mind. He went on a campaign in order to try and do whatever he could do to make the the training as difficult as possible. Plastic surgery training is already incredibly challenging. From It's incredibly demanding. The amount of hours you spent in the hospital, the amount of hours you spend on call, the amount of hours you spend on call while you're at home, the amount of hours you spend in the operating room taking care of patients. But on top of that, he decided that it was appropriate to give me an abundance of responsibilities the other residents didn't have, basically in order to push me to the edge. It was almost, it was mm -hmm. like a hazing situation, sort of. Were and you the only was, outspoken Jewish person there? Yeah, but I wouldn't even say that I was an outspoken Jew. I was just... Clearly Jewish. I was yeah. just a Jew, yeah. yeah. I was just 
I wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was the only part of my identity, but for some reason it just, you know, anti-Semitism can't really be explained, or at least I can't explain it. There's just something that irks people mm-hmm. about um, somebody who is Jewish and who's who's proud of their heritage. And I think that that's what this situation was. It had nothing to do with my performance. It had nothing to do with my skills. It had nothing to do with anything except the fact that I was identified as this person. And so although there were other people within the department that I was being trained at that did like me, did not have a problem with me, they were not going to basically stand up and say, hey, let's not do this to this person. Let's not act in this way. Let's essentially not try to end his career. And if you look back throughout history, there's always been times where things like this have happened and there are people who stay silent. There are mm-hmm. people who, who you know, in Nazi Germany would watch the trains fill up and, and get sent off to the camps. There are people in Russia who would not participate in pogroms, but wouldn't come to the aid of you know, their fellow neighbors because they were Jewish. And now in 2021, you're seeing it more blatantly than ever before mm-hmm. in the political spectrum, in on social media, with celebrities. I mean, it's now, it's really now not even covert anymore. It's very, very overt. Mm-hmm. But what I experienced was much more covert. And I had a choice. Was this your first time experiencing antisemitism? Yes, Yeah, yeah, it was a very bizarre thing because as a Jew in New York, you're essentially a majority. (laughs) But when you're in a place where you're not, and I'm going to say this, me and my wife made some of our closest and dearest friends down there. I had an amazing experience in Birmingham. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful city. We have friends down there that we still go and visit, and we have friends down there that come and visit us. And so we were able to really make some amazing connections with the people down there. This was a very specific individual Mm -hmm. with a very specific agenda. And for people listening, you know, just to make it clear, like this isn't somebody who has a history of feeling judged or feeling some type of anti-sentimism throughout their life or whatever. You know, this is somebody who this is your first experience ever and confused and not really understanding why this is going on. Yeah, I actually couldn't figure it out for a while uh, until I spoke to a couple of people about the situation and what was going on. And sometimes you need to speak to, you know, some of your smart friends and you need to talk to people. And when they basically told me, this is what you're experiencing, they called it modern day anti-Semitism. That's when I was like, wow, you're absolutely right. That's what it was. And for So this was a three-year program. And so for two years, every single day, knowing what was happening and what these individuals were trying to do and how adamantly they were trying to do it, I would get up and then essentially, you know, put on my armor, get myself mentally prepared, walk into work, do the job the best possible way you could ever do it, being scrutinized, being under a microscope, standing across the operating room table with a person who wanted to, who wanted nothing to do with me and who saw me as essentially a problem and get through it. And I did. And I got through it every single day. And every single assignment that they threw at me, every extra thing that I had to do, every extra thing that I had to write, every extra bit of work that I had to do, I did every single solitary one of them. And that just fanned the flames. Mm -hmm. 
It was, why is this individual not, you know, succeeding? Why is he continuing to persevere? Why is he so persistent? Why can't we just get rid of him? Why can't we have our way? And the other thing that I did is I basically figured out how the internal system of the university worked, and I followed the protocol. I followed the system. I went to the right people, and I spoke to the right people, and I brought this to the right people's attention. And I did it in a very appropriate, very respectful, very systematic way. And I persisted because initially, you know, you're not taken seriously all the time, you're not listened to, but when you're able to make your case to a group of individuals who are objective and who can see, you know, through the things that did not make sense that were being presented to them by the program, they were able to say, you know, maybe there is something here. Maybe what he's explaining to us isn't all in his head or isn't his version of events, but are the actual version of the events. And so I kept having little wins after win after win, and that, again, just fueled and fanned the flames Mm -hmm. to the point where, um, you know, this individual said to me, well, you know what, if I can't get rid of you, then I'm just going to keep you here forever. You can stay. You can Mm -hmm. stay a resident. I have no obligation to let you go at any point. So if you like being here so much, well, then you can just stay here for as Mm -hmm. long as it takes. And I looked at him and I said, well, all right, let's let's see where this goes. And um, in the end, I, you know, was fine. Graduated, you know, on time, perfectly, moved on with my life. And that was when I thought, that was me going, I guess, through my hell. I thought that surviving that situation, going through that for two years, uh, I was lucky enough to have the support of my wife, and I was lucky enough to have the support of my family here in New York, to have the support of my friends there in in Alabama, as well as here in New York. Obviously, I've always said I've had an excellent support system, which I'm very blessed to have. I thought, you know, now it's time to celebrate. You made it. You're done. That difficult time is behind you. I would think to myself, and the lessons that I learned is that, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It reaffirmed my belief in that. It reaffirmed my faith because obviously I prayed a lot and I asked for a lot of help and a lot of guidance. And I had a lot of people there who helped me. I had what I call a lot of angels sent my way who helped me navigate through this. Mm -hmm. And I was um, victorious in the end. And I made my way back to New York. You know, while always sort of in the back of my head thinking to myself, Even while I was going through it, I'm like, this is happening and I'm experiencing this and navigating this situation because I know, and I hated thinking it, but I said, I know there's something else coming. I know that there is something, becoming a successful plastic surgeon, becoming a successful practice owner, business owner, uh, somebody who wants to scale a practice is a very difficult thing to do. And so I always think to myself, this is preparing me for that. But I had no idea how it was preparing me for it. But I'm a very intuitive person and I knew that it was in some way preparing me for it. And I always look back on the experience and I'm grateful for it. And sometimes I look at it and I wish to myself that I could have had that, you know, great collegial professional camaraderie type of relationship 
with these individuals down there. But on the other hand, I think to myself, the lesson that I walked away with and the strength that I was able to realize that I had is well worth that sacrifice. Absolutely. So then what else happened later on? So when I came to New York, I was very, you know, quite ambitious, wanted to just hit the ground running. And I started my own practice, Mm -hmm. essentially hung a shingle and started working. I grew very quickly. I don't know why. I shouldn't say this as a plastic surgeon, but I, I'm, I don't think that I'm some sort of a prodigy. Uh, I believe very much in honing my skills, and it took a lot of time and a lot of practice in order to do so. But you know, as a couple of the years went by, 2017, 2018, I started to do some really, really nice work. I started to have some very, very happy patients, and I started to you know, kind of become well-known It's a small industry here in New York. And as you grow, you realize that it takes a village to run a plastic surgery practice. It's not a one-man show. It's not a two-man show. It's not a five-man show. You need a lot of people backing you up, people you can trust, people you can count on, people you can blindly listen to if they tell you something. And there was a very large amount of naivete on my part when it came to that. I did find some really great people that I still currently have in, as part of my practice, but I also had the, you know, the unfortunate luck of having certain individuals who had been in this field for um, longer than I had been in it as far as, you know, practicing in it people who were nurses and who were operating room techs and people who just kind of worked in this industry of plastic surgery. And they saw a young, successful, thriving plastic surgeon opening up his own practice, building out his own office. I mean, we have a beautiful, massive 5,000 square foot office in the heart of Midtown. We just took Mm. over another floor in the building. And so thankfully we continue to grow because of the amazing work that we're currently doing here. But they saw an opportunity to capitalize on that. And so, and what I needed then was help. I needed to make sure that my patients were well taken care of. I needed to make sure that things were happening. It's just like running any kind of business. You need to have the right team in place in order to run a successful business and have happy clients and have happy patients and be able to make sure that your reputation is is maintained and kept intact. Mm -hmm. And I made the mistake of surrounding myself with a couple of less than reputable individuals. They knew exactly sort of how to infiltrate themselves into my life, all the perfect things to say, how to make themselves seem like they were irreplaceable and give themselves immense value, which again, on my part, I hadn't been doing this for that long. And so I took them at their word value. I said, well, you can do all these great things you're claiming to do, and you can do all these amazing things that you're claiming to do. And I'm in need of those kinds of services, and I'm in need of your expertise. And so we should definitely all work together. And for a short amount of time, we did, and things were good. But then essentially it grew into something that um, became extremely toxic. And I was um, kind of blindsided by a couple of these people who were my, I would call them my right-hand people. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, these were um, nurses and these were 
managers that I had within my practice that I had full faith and full trust in. And their entire endgame was basically to try and place themselves in a position where I believed them to be irreplaceable. And when I finally got to the point where, where the behavior and the attitude got too toxic to deal with within the office, they resorted to doing things and planning things and saying things in order to kind of very much damage the reputation of the practice as well as damage my reputation. See, as a physician and as any professional, but truly as a doctor, your reputation is who you are. Mm -hmm. If that reputation is questioned, if that trust is in any way ever put in doubt, that can be one of the most difficult things to deal with, and it can be devastating. And frankly, I think that some of the things that I have endured would probably have made anybody else's business tank, and they would have headed for the hills. But I did exactly the opposite. And I think that that's where kind of my biggest strength lies. I always do the exact opposite of what I think 99% of my colleagues or other people in my position would do. And mm -hmm. I've been told by them. I have some very close friends that are plastic surgeons here in New York, and they're young, and they're working to really thrive and, and build a name for themselves and build a practice for themselves without any of the challenges that I've had. And they all kind of look at me and say, you are... Like, wow, mm -hmm. if we had to endure some of the craziness that you've had to go through, there's no way we we would have been able to do and we would have been able to be here. But my practice didn't take a hit and because I wouldn't let it. Mm -hmm. If it makes any sense, I willed the practice into success. I literally would not allow it to go any other way. And despite, you know, these individuals' best efforts... I've been able to maintain my core values. I haven't let them go astray. I refuse to let myself get jaded. I refuse to let myself focus on the insanity because I think that the biggest thing that they were hoping to accomplish besides sort of discrediting me was to try and get inside my head and make me kind of say, you know what, this mm -hmm. is crazy. This is too much. But Now, did these people like, ever go into like a real lawsuit or anything like that? I mean, I would imagine that another part of their motives are some type of financial gain. So initially there were extortion demands that were made, um, very foolishly so. After the extortion demands were turned down, I don't give in to extortion. I don't know if this interview kind of portrays for you exactly the kind of person I am, but I'm the last person you can extort. Any other surgeon would have probably paid these people you know, off and gotten them out of their life. My belief is, first of all, A, you're not going to threaten me with some nonsense and try and extort me. It's not about the money. It's about the principle. Mm -hmm. It's always, about, I'm a very principled individual. It has nothing to do with... The, you know, however many zeros were at the end of the number they were demanding, it had to do with the fact that how dare you? Mm -hmm. How dare you use this as leverage to try and get something out of me? And once the extortion demands failed, then they essentially turned to trying to do things legally. There were 
two attorneys who initially thought about taking on the case and essentially once the actual details of the case Mm -hmm. were brought to light, they ran. You know, not all attorneys are bad. There are attorneys out there with um, integrity. There are attorneys out there with moral compasses. Just like doctors, they also take a vow to actually do what's right. And so if they see something that's glaringly and blatantly Um, lies and an attempt at extortion, they will back away. So that kind of went on for a little bit. And one of the individuals, uh, when she realized that she could not extort me and she could not sue me, decided to then essentially rob me. And so she created, she had stolen Again, this is getting into the murky, you know, into a lot of the details that I don't necessarily want to get into, but she had access to um, my office. She had access to a lot of personal information having to do with my identity. So she was um, essentially brought up on charges of identity theft, grand larceny, Mm. extortion, all of which the Manhattan district attorney pursued. She was arrested for them. She was charged with them. And this is all, you know, public information that's out there. But, um, you know, unfortunately, my reputation um, and my name was smeared because it was kind of the last thing that could have been done as retaliation. Mm-hmm. If that, ma- if that <laughs> yeah. does that make does yeah. that if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of sense. You know, what are some things with a particular plastic surgery industry that is unique in your industry? Because plastic surgery is very different than other types of surgery, where I would imagine you have patients that are, one, possibly suffering from body dysmorphia, extremely critical of themselves, never content, and you have to deal with some people that are not happy with, you know, their God-given bodies in the first place, which I'm not saying that if you get plastic surgery or something bad about it or anything like that, some people, you know, it's just simply enhancing their body. How do you deal with, you know, some of the difficult clients or some of the difficult situations that's unique to plastic surgery? So let me address that question, and then, and then I'm going to address your first question, which is um, the uniqueness of plastic surgery. So what do you do with patients who have unrealistic expectations, and what do you do with patients that you suspect have some sort of body dysmorphia? You are trained, and if you're smart enough and savvy enough and intuitive enough to understand who those patients are, and during your consultation, you get a sense for those patients, you get a sense of who they are by the way that they describe themselves, by the way that they refer to themselves, by their body language, by the the adjectives that they use to describe themselves. And if you realize that the things that they are saying are so out of the realm of what is actually the reality of who they are physically, that is a red flag. And those people, you turn away. Mm -hmm. You don't operate on them. Um, There are other patients that have expectations that might be maybe slightly out of the scope of realistic. And with those patients, you take a lot of time to really sit down and explain to them exactly what is possible. You explain to them exactly what the pitfalls are of the surgery that they want. You explain to them what you're able to achieve for them. You explain to them what you're not able to achieve for them. You make sure that they affirm a real and true understanding of what it is that you're describing. And if you feel that you have a meeting of the mind with that patient, then you move forward. I have had 
more than one, not too many, but I would like to say maybe two or three patients that came to me. They were very unhappy with their body. They seemed very rational in, the, in why they were unhappy with their body and with their physique and what they wanted to have done to it. These were patients that were being treated for uh, psychiatric you know, illnesses, which is not uncommon at all for patients, especially for patients seeking plastic surgery, who after their operations essentially were cured, and I'm not kidding when I say this, of their depression. They stopped needing to take their medications. They slowly weaned themselves off of going to their therapist, and they're leading much happier and healthier lives. I was shocked when they came to me and said, you essentially cured me. Mm. But that's always something that I like to think about because it, once you took care of that one problem for them, their insecurity went away. Mm-hmm. And then for the most part, if you have the right patient with the right expectation and they're the right candidate, they're extremely happy. You have to set proper expectations. You have to make sure that they understand what they are. I tend to sh- you know, undershoot a little bit and over-deliver, which I think is a lot better than over-promising and under-delivering. You know, that's always a nice surprise for the patient. And then as to your first question, a very small, small piece of the plastic surgery pie is actually cosmetic surgery. Plastic surgeons are some of the smartest physicians and some of the smartest people. A lot of them actually have engineering backgrounds because plastic surgery deals with every aspect of the body. So like I was talking to you about earlier, you know, craniofacial um, anomalies like cleft lips and cleft palates, children that are born with something called craniosynostosis, which is essentially kids that have weird shaped skulls, that the shapes, you know, the skull is malformed because certain areas of the skulls fuse more quickly than they're supposed to. These are very technical things. Um, Plastic surgeons will, you know, craniofacial surgeons will essentially take apart a 10-month-old baby skull and put it back together. They will fix huge facial clefts. They will reconstruct breasts after breast cancers and after mastectomies. Um, They will do microsurgery free flaps to fill in huge defects left in the body after cancer resections. They will do lower limb salvages from major traumas in order to save people's hands, people's feet. If your finger gets cut off, they'll replant it for you. I mean, these are Mm. all things that I did during training. The breadth of plastic surgery is so vast, so amazing. My practice is, we are, and we've become known as being extremely um, transgender friendly and a place where a lot of transgender patients come in order to achieve, you know, the multiple steps that they need to take in order to do the uh, gender affirmation surgeries that they want. And so we have a lot of transgender patients who come here for body contouring. We have a lot of patients that come here for top surgery. We've worked with um, some very well-known and well-respected advocates and uh, influencers in the trans community. Mm. So that's been something that's been very rewarding for me because those patients truly are grateful. And after each procedure, and there are, it's a multitude of procedures. It's, you know, it's from facial feminization to, you know, top surgery to body contouring surgery that, you know, makes you finally feel comfortable as, you know, feeling that you are the gender that you were supposed to be born. And that's something that, you know, we do quite a bit of here. Wow. 
that's a you know plastic surgery again. It's a very vast, wide breadth of yeah. Of I didn't even think about that, but that's got to be coming more and more popular. Extremely, it's wow. ex- becoming extremely popular, and the more you know, the more the trans community gains acceptance and gains recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, the more people are comfortable and seeking out those affirmation surgeries. Very cool. Um, I guess to wrap up, what do you see that, you know, is like the hell of the healthcare industry as being a doctor that you're not really prepared for in med school? I don't know uh, exactly if there's one specific thing. I think that if you approach healthcare very methodically and thoughtfully. And if you're, you know, if you look at your patient and think to yourself, can I improve this patient's life? Is there something that I can do to help them? Um, Do I think that I can do it well? Do I think that they understand the risks and the benefits of what I'm going to do for them? Is it worth doing? Then you will have happy patients. And even if you have a problem or a complication, which everybody does from the absolute best, Um, to the not best, then you are uh, you can navigate through those situations because you've developed a rapport and a trust with your patient. And if you approach the field with um, you know with arrogance and with a certain attitude that is not friendly in the sense that you develop a kind of bond and relationship with your patients, but it's kind of like, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. I don't think that that's necessarily going to be doing anyone any favors. There are plastic surgeons out there that have an aesthetic, and if you as a patient don't meet that aesthetic, they refuse to see beyond their own what they consider to be appropriate or beautiful or the thing that they could do for you. I don't think along those lines. When I talk to my patient, I try to understand what their aesthetic is, what they're hoping to achieve. And as long as it's not something that I think is outside the scope of reality or something that I think is um, unreasonable, mm-hmm. I'm there to you know make their, I don't want to say dream, but I'm there to kind of make their vision come to life the best I can. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to to say before we part, I know um, New York has been pretty, uh, I mean, the whole country has been in kind of like this uproar with what's going on in the Jewish community. And um, yeah, just listen. I mean, I think dialogue, talking, understanding, and hearing the other side rather than going on social media, reading memes, and not understanding exactly you know, what the history of of everything is, um, especially the younger generation. I think it's important to educate yourself, understand what it is that you're being um, shown and being, like all things, a an educated consumer, whether it's a consumer of plastic surgery, whether it's a consumer of of thoughts, whether it's a consumer of of anything. Uh, it's important to understand where the where the rhetoric is coming from. And that history always has a way of repeating itself. So this is definitely not the first time that as a community, people have had to endure, you know, this type of hate. And unfortunately, it probably won't be the last. So, you know, I just, I think it's important to to educate yourself and to be willing to have a conversation rather than just blindly believe a dialogue that is, that is not complete. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I know that when this all started, I was kind of like, you know, I've never been to Israel. You know, I have friends that are Jewish. And like the first thing I did was call some of my friends that I know are like extremely outspokenly Jewish and asking them how they feel about the situation, you know, because I know that liking a post or screenshotting a post is like one thing, you know, and I wanted to really talk to, you know, friends and family about how they're, how they're personally doing and what I could do to support them. And um, I think that, uh, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to show people that people can go through adversity and have a positive outcome and really the mentality that it takes to overcome adversity, whether it's in a career, whether it's through addiction, anything else. And, um, you know, what you said was like a theme in your story is that, you know, whenever someone said you couldn't do something, you knew that that was them basically giving you an ace to finish it off because, you know, that fuels you when someone says that this can't happen. Yes. My favorite historical character, I think, to this day is Winston Churchill. And there's a famous quote by him that basically, and the quote is, never, ever give up. Mm Mm-hmm. I live my life by that motto. And, you know, Winston Churchill is one of the greatest historical figures of all time. And through the greatest adversity of having, you know, World War II and and winning against all odds, it was that personality and it was that motto and it was that level of perseverance that got him through what he needed to get through and made him into this kind of legend that will Mm -hmm. live in the history books forever. So, you know, that I think is what gets you through hell. Just don't give up. Where do you see yourself, uh, you know, at 49? Still uh, doing plastic surgery? Yes, but on a much different scale. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, on a different level. Yeah, 10 years from now, it's, there's not going to be one millennial plastic surgery. Hopefully, there'll be about 30 of them. Awesome. Well, I yeah. hope to see that dream come true. And, uh, you know, you've done everything else you said you're out to do. So I appreciate you. Uh, just a backstory that, uh, you know, I met you through a close friend of mine. And, uh, you know, when she told me about you, she had introduced me to a lot of uh, some other people on the podcast. And she was like, look, you got to do this doctor. He's got a hell of a story. And uh, I just want to commend you for everything you've been through. You know, I think it's very cool that, uh, you know, the work you did in the Philippines. You know, my dream or my one of my goals this year is to do a mission trip. And I have one planet in November. And I want to try to do that like an annual thing as well. So that was really cool to hear from you. Yeah, it's extremely rewarding and it's extremely fun. It's not work. It really is just like a, it's a very cathartic experience and you really leave there feeling amazing. So definitely do that. Well, thank you so much, doctor. I appreciate you coming on the show. Pleasure speaking with you, Brian. Thank you so much. Have a good one. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.